It's good to be with you today. It is, uh, we, we're going to get back, let me tell you where we've been and where we're going and, and get started here. Um, we've gone through the Easter season. It's not over. Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and his power. And, and we have gone through, looked at um, where we can find hope in Jesus, find it's not over yet. And that, today we're getting back to our study we had previously left right before Easter, which is in the book of James. So we've been going verse by verse through the book of James. And we're in James chapter 4, verse 11 today. James chapter 4, verse 11. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't, it's good news. We'll have it on the screen for you in a minute. And what I'd like to do this morning as we get going is just read the Word of God. Um, and and, and kind of just camp out here for a second. So let's just read this together. James 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil against, against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go on to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know that what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. There's a condition in which James is talking about. If we just kind of get catch you back, I'm telling you, this has been about a month since we've been in the book of James, and I guarantee you, you don't remember what you had for lunch last week, okay? Like maybe one meal maybe stands out to you, but you slept. You may not remember what you had for breakfast this morning right now. Some of you are going through that little Rolodex in your mind like, I'm not sure, Okay. I forgot to eat. Okay, lunch is coming. Hold on. And so we think about it. I want to catch us back up in James to where we've been. And here is the basic premise of the book of James. It's this, that faith without works is dead. That true saving faith, and what he does here is define what saving faith is. Saving faith, what what we're talking about is we are not saved by works. We are saved by trusting in the purchased redemption that Jesus bought on Calvary. We trust in his finished work and nothing else. And that trust is the instrument by which we experience God's grace. However, saving, true saving faith, James kind of outlines it for us. He fleshes it out, and he shows us that saving faith works. That if you are if you have a faith in Jesus, it results in good works. And so he has gone through this epistle and he's shown how we can't, show, we can't show partiality. We have to watch our mouth. What comes out of our mouth represents who we are in Christ. He talks about all these different things. He talks about desires warring amongst them. And then he talks to these believers here today about two things. The first thing he talks about is talking down about one another, being critical. And the, the second thing he talks about is presumption. Presumption. I'm going to start here and see that this is an attitude that reflects the world's attitude. Have you ever seen a segment on a popular late night television show called Mean Tweets? What, what it is is people, famous athletes, actors, will read tweets that they've received about themselves on, on national television. And they're some of the most nasty, 
unflattering things ever. And to hear these people read the very things that other people have said about them on social media. You guys know social media is, like, not private, right? Okay, this wasn't, like, just the nasty email guy saying, like, for everyone to see, somebody posted about them, tagged this celebrity in that, and said something nasty about them. You ever seen that? It's kind of fun to watch because you got the person, like, like saying this awful stuff about themselves. And then they kind of laugh about it. But at the same time, like, well, that's just awful. I can't believe people would say that. Do you know the way of the world is criticism, right? Think about it. We have a platform now which to tell the world what we think about anything. I could tell you what I thought about my meal. I could do that quick. I got Yelp. I got Twitter. I got Instagram. I, I could take a picture of me not enjoying my meal, like, mm, okay? You could do all sorts of different things in that regard. You could put that out there. The world is a very critical, harsh place. And what we see in these two attitudes here that James tries to combat is worldliness. Remember what Jesus would say? Broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And that is, in essence, what he's saying, that in the church, sadly, worldliness can penetrate it. And what what do you do? There's a couple of responses people take to that. I don't have nothing to do with the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. That's true. Why don't you come join us? Okay? We're actually, we should be repentant hypocrites. Okay? That's one way you could take it. Or you could take it this other way. You, you could say, hey, hey, look, this is a place where we can acknowledge what's wrong and have the grace of God to be better through his grace and power. And so what happens here is we don't have to walk in worldliness. Worldliness can, can penetrate the church. It can exist in the church, but it should not exist in the church. And James calls it out and says, Come away from that, my brothers. Come away from your critical spirits and come away from this, this, this spirit of presumption that you omit God in your lives. And so first off, I'd like us to look in verse 11 through 12 and see what is going on to the believers that James is writing to and see how he needs to root out critical, a critical spirit in our lives. In verse 11, it says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Starts off, it's very, it's very clear. If you're wondering, what should I avoid doing? Speaking evil against a brother. This actually, the word here, the word evil doesn't actually appear in this text. It's kind of inference from the verb here, which means to speak. It really is to speak down to, to speak about somebody. Now, I know some of you, maybe not in this room, but you've heard this before. Don't judge me. How dare you judge me? Don't you judge me. We like to say, the Bible says judge not unless you be judged, okay? And that's like the only scripture that half the world knows, okay? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't be. There is an essence. There is part of that that is true, but there's another part we're going to come at in a minute, and it shows you that what, what, is the heart and, and what is the heart behind judgmentalism that the Bible condemns? And it's this. Don't speak down to another brother. So this is a, this command and this, this course correction with worldliness sneaking into the church is for believers who are speaking down about other believers. And it goes on to say, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or down to a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. This verb that we get that was seen here a couple of times, which means speak down to or speak evil against, how it's translated here, is also used in 2 Peter. 
And it's used, of, it's used by non-Christians talking about the church, trying to slander people in the church to make them look small, inferior, and sinful, and to put them down in light of other people. So I want you to get at the very core, the nature of what he is talking about is not to never, ever, ever say anything is sin, because that's what most of us get to when we get to judge, judgment, okay? We think of judgment. Anytime anybody ever makes a comment about your life or anything about your life, you go, don't judge me. How, how, could, you, how could you judge me? Let me show you how foolish it is to think that that is what he's talking about. Do you know what he's doing right here? He is telling people how they are wrong. So if he was actually meaning... You following me here, okay? If he was actually meaning to say, what it means to never judge and to speak down to someone is never expose sin. As so many of us like to say, he's actually violating that as he is speaking. We go on further in James chapter 5, at the very end of the book, in this abrupt ending to the book, he says, how precious is it if someone tur helps turn another sinner away from sin? So I want you to know something. Judgmentalism is not expressing what is true. Because the Bible actually says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Word of God, that the Bible is the Word of God, okay? It's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. I want you to get this. It's actually really unloving to know the truth and not tell somebody the truth. You know that, right? How many people could have been saved and embarrassed by national television on American Idol had someone just really spoke the truth to them in love and said, you can't sing? Like, how much embarrassment would it be, would it be like if someone just came to you like, sweetheart, I love you, but that's a size two, okay? Put some clothes on. I'm just being honest with you here. It's actually, it's actually some... It's not love to not tell the truth. And so when he's talking about talking down about a brother and judging a brother, the idea is, is, is you are judging them and looking for fault in such a way that you are trying to put them down. So there can be a judgmental spirit that does even teach the truth of God in a way that is meant just to try to hold you down and to lift ourselves up. That is a judgment that that is the judgment James is talking about. He is not talking about a proclamation of the truth with aim towards love. What do you mean a proclamation of the truth with aim towards love? Do you know the reason why you want to preach the Bible and talk about the Bible and, and tell what the Bible says is because, well, actually, it's God's word. Secondly, people need to hear God's Word wherever it conflicts in their life because God's Word is more true than your best opinion at any given time. I mean, it really is. Our opinions are basically worthless when it comes to our right standing before God and what's right. And so that is the essence here. He does not, there apparently is going on in the church. And we've talked about, and if you go back in chapter 4, he's talking about fights and quarrels that happen among you and all these different things that are happening amongst these believers. We don't know where they are. They're scattered abroad, because, probably because of persecution. And what we know here is that they have, something has come up in which they are, some believers in the church have gotten it up crossed. About something. We don't know what. There's a lot of people, a lot of ink's been spilled trying to tell you what it's about. We don't know. You know why? Because it doesn't tell us. 
We can, we can part, you know, piece together a few things. But what is basically happening is one group or the other are speaking evil against each other, trying to find fault. And it says, he's saying here, do not, brothers, do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So there's a situation in the church, something that should not be there, in which people are not just, they're not speaking the truth in love to get to one another. They are speaking the truth in a way and fault-finding in a way and talking about, other behind, talking about each other behind their back and saying, look how evil this person is. Do you know what so-and-so has done? Have you ever said, do you know, did you see what they were doing? Did you hear what they were wearing? Did you see that? There is this backbiting, this fault-finding that is going on in the church, not in the situation where you're trying to help a brother who is in sin and trying to restore them, but a situation in which people are trying to assert their dominance or assert their opinion or assert, assert that they're right by finding fault in the other person. That is not the way a believer should handle themselves. The believer in Jesus, the Christian is not supposed to speak evil against a brother finding fault. The only time we are supposed, we're supposed to speak truth to that person with the intent of our heart to turn them from sin, not to show that we are better than them. Do you hear me? I think that is at the, the core of this. If your heart is not to turn the person from their sin, but it is to assert that you are better, that is judgment. The Bible does not prevent us from telling people the truth. In fact, it calls us to tell people the truth in love. Don't forget the in love part. And the motivation matters. Because there's inevitably going to come controversies and people getting it up crossed in the church. Happens everywhere. People get it up cross driving. People get it up cross at the Piggly Wiggly. I'm telling you, it's funny to go at, go to the Piggly Wiggly down here and just to hear some of the cashiers talk about their day, okay? And to see, like, so-and-so got mad at me about this. I'm like, you're at a grocery store. What are you people are getting mad about? That's weird. You're buying chicken and bread. How can you get that worked up about it? I don't know. You can tell where my mind's going, too. I just thought chicken and bread. I mean, whatever. <laughs> that is a worldliness this, this idea of speaking down to another in order to raise yourself up, a speak, to find fault in that person, that is what James is getting at. He says that we should not, as believers, we should not speak evil against our brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And then he goes and says, but if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, that's a little bit confusing if we're honest with ourselves, right? If you speak against a brother, you're judging the law. What does that mean? Well, immediately we would think the law, the Mosaic law, the law that was handed down through Moses that we see in Moses' writings, we see in Leviticus, and we see the ceremonial laws there, and we see the law, maybe the Ten Commandments handed down. But what we see in James is that he has mentioned the law in several other occasions. In fact, he has mentioned the law in James 1.25, James 2.8, and James 2.9, he talks about the law, but he calls it in James 1.25, when he talks about the law, he calls it the law of liberty. Usually, law and liberty do not go together. You think liberty is the ability to cross the street whenever you want to, okay? The law says no jaywalking, but we say 
Liberty says, I'm going to run out in the middle of traffic. You know why? Because I want to. All right? I mean, not that that's smart, but, you know, it's like I'm going to assert my rights, okay, to walk in the traffic. You think law and liberty are mutually exclusive, but what he is getting at, first off, why would he call it the law of liberty? Because I want you to know something. The law of God shows us our sin and our desperate need for a Savior who is Jesus. The law of God shows us that there is no, none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And if you want to see that, well, just go ahead and bust out the Mosaic law, and you can check off all the ones you have broken. And then Jesus made it more difficult. He said, not only have you broken them physically, if you've broken them in your heart, you're still guilty. And so why is the law a law of liberty? Because it shows us our sin and shows our need for liberty in Jesus Christ, first off. Secondly, I want you to know this. He sums up, Jesus sums up the entire law and the prophets in the Gospels. What is the summation? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. James will bring that up again when he talks about law. He is not talking about the Mosaic law in the strictest sense. He is talking about the Christian understanding of the law, which knows that the law can bring liberty through knowledge of sin and a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And secondly, the law is summed up. You can sum up all of those laws in these two things, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And so he that is a big point that he makes in James 2, 8, and 9. That what, when he's talking about partiality and how we shouldn't show partiality in the church is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And so what he is saying here is that if you speak evil against your brother, you speak evil against God's law, law of liberty, which one of the second great components of it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And as you're sitting here right now, as soon as I talked about and mentioned, don't judge me. Some of you, when like, you're thinking about judgmental people immediately. Oh, no, they shouldn't judge me. I can't believe they would judge me. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how, how could they judge me? See, because I, I don't judge people. And so here is, here is here's where, we've, where we're thinking. What our line of thought, our progression of thought is, is that we, we think that the law... We think that to speak against another brother is the ultimate thing that, that we're doing. And we, we don't like to be we don't like to be judged. Do you like to be judged? Would you like it if at the end of of our time here together you went back on social media and you saw after your church day you saw a picture of yourself in an unflattering light? And somebody is from you at church, like sitting there, maybe you're singing the praise song, you got your hand up, whatever, and somebody's taking a picture, and there's like five or six other people on the bottom of that have commented about how you looked or what you were doing, and they were not very nice comments. Would you like to see that? I guess some of you would, okay? No, you wouldn't want to see that, would you? No, you would not like to be judged, so you're in violation of this law, and that was, Jesus said those are the two great commandments, and so in a... In essence, when brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ judge each other and speak against each other, not, talking, not telling each other the truth so that we'll turn away from sin, but when we speak down to each other, find fault, look for those little nitpicky details that are wrong in each other's lives, we are judging, we are basically speaking evil against the law, saying, Lord, your second great commandment doesn't really matter that much that to love our neighbor as ourself 
is really not that true. And that's what he means here by speaking, what did he say? He says, speaking evil against the law and judges the law. You're saying that law is not right. See, at the essence, disobedience to God is looking at his law and saying, I know better than you do. You're not the boss of me. It's kind of like when you were in grade school and they'd put that one kid in charge of the class when the teacher was out. That teacher was there taking names, and you didn't care. You know why? You're not the boss of me. You're, you're in my grade. When you look at the law of God in such a manner, and you, and you speak down against your brother, and you say that, 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 that the, the, two, the, the summation of the law, which is love your neighbor as yourself, is not, not binding for you. You're judging the law and saying, that is not the boss over me. And then verse 12 says this, there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Let's go back to that analogy of the classroom. That person, you know, the goody two-shoes that's writing down the names. Come up, it happens, though, when that person hands that name to the teacher. You remember, I think about, I guess I think in grade school terms because my wife still teaches grade school, you know. And you think about that, when she'd find out, when she'd had a sub go out, and, you know, you tell the sub, the kids would tell the sub, yeah, our teacher lets us eat candy, and, and, you know, and, and right on the board a permanent marker, and light fires in the trash bin, okay? And she gets back and finds out, she gives them that eye, like the, I'll kill you, you know, eye. And then you, there's the comeuppance for that. And so what he gets here, is he's saying, like, we cannot judge and speak harshly and critically of others of others in the church. We must speak truth to them so they return. That can't be what we do because if we're doing that, we're judging the law of God and the law of God, the law of God, which is summed up in the two great commandments, we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And if we don't do that, we're judging law saying, God, that's not the boss over me. And in so doing, we are telling the judge and lawgiver that he is not in charge. But James reasserts this point that there is only one lawgiver and judge. He's got this covered. He'll judge rightly and correctly. And he who is able to save and to destroy, it's God. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Remember, this is not the attitude of speaking truth to someone in order that they would turn. This is the attitude of speaking truth to condemn that person. If that's you, if you're speaking truth in order to condemn people, you are not you are judging people, and you are judging God's law, which says to love your neighbor as yourself. You're judging it as irrelevant. And that cannot be in the church. There is an essence that the church does need to judge, that we do need to talk about truth. But the, the, the heart behind when we talk about truth must be to turn that person, it must be love, to turn them away from sin and not to condemn them. That is the essence of what he is saying in this section. And I want you to just, just put that. Can you, can you imagine? You've probably seen this happen in a church. Hopefully you haven't seen it happen here, but God forbid, maybe it has. You may have seen people who just, just, just doggedly go at each other and they find fault with each other. If you want to find fault with somebody in this church, you can. If you want to find fault with me, just come to my house. You want to find fault with me? Come in my office. My wife, my wife can find fault easily. I can tell her because my office is a wreck, okay? I don't 
I'm not considerate when it comes to where I throw my clothes, okay? I'm not. If you want to find fault, you can. What's the purpose in finding fault? You ever been in one of those marital disputes in which you just start finding fault with one another? That's not going to end well. Is it? No? Because what's the end going to be? I just want to make them feel bad about themselves. Well, that's going to make for a happy marriage, isn't it? The same thing goes in the church. We are not supposed to speak evil against one another to find fault. Because what, what are you going to do when you find it? Because you will find it. No, the, the ch- judgment can exist, this pure judgment, the one where you, you, the, the rebuke of Scripture can exist, in which what are you trying to do? What's your end game there? When, when that, that true kind of speaking the truth to, in love, which should be in the church, what are we trying to do? You speak the truth, you find the area of your life that somebody speaks it into your life, and all of a sudden you find the area that's wrong. What do you do? You immediately turn from that, and now you've been brought back, and you're following Jesus again. You had kind of deterred, you're kind of off, off the beaten path, and now you've come back. It's, the difference. it's, it's, it's this difference. When the, tr- when the Christian speaks truth to other believers... It's kind of like your car, that sensor where it's telling you when you're going off the road. You know, some of the new cars have that. You know what I'm talking about? It's really annoying. It really is annoying. Because even if you just get a little bit close to the line, that thing's like, I mean, you know what I mean? Okay, and it's like, and it scares me every time. I don't have it in my car, but our folks have it. And like, like, you're like, oh, that lane assist, okay, get over. That's what it's like to speak truth as a believer in love. You're trying to course correct. What James is talking about and what he's warning us against is us being in the same vehicle with somebody who's veering off the road. We don't want them just to, we see them veering, but we don't just want them to veer. We want them to crash. So you know what we do? Okay? While they're driving. The lane assist, what is it there for? To move us back to where we need to be. That's the tr- Christian speaking the truth in love. The sin that James is talking about of judgment here is trying to scare the person to death and to which they would crash the car, but you're in the car too. Because we're in the church together. That can't be, brothers. That's a worldliness. How many of you know, how many of you know people and friends that are basically friends so that they can ridicule and be mean to one another? Frenemies. You've heard that term. That exists. That's a real thing. There are people that you know, they, they, they are friends just so they can one-up one another. That's a very worldly thing. That is a very worldly attitude in which to take. And, and James is saying, brothers, we cannot be that harsh, judgmental people. We can't be the ones encouraging everybody to wreck so we might look better. I came out of that wreck better than they did. We need to be course correct, lane warnings, if you will, for one another. When we, when we judge one another in the church with harsh intent in which to put them down and make us look better, we are telling God, your laws are garbage. And we're saying, we are the judge, not you. And James asserts that there is only one lawgiver and judge. And that he is the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? A judgmental spirit cannot, a critical spirit cannot exist in a church. 
whenever it is there. And I and by all of us, because we all have it because of the culture by which we live in and because our default settings, apart from the grace of God, are towards sin. We must continually check our motives so that we don't get to that place. You don't want to go into a critical, judgmental, unloving place. You want to go into a church that will speak the truth to you in love, that wants to help you land correct and not wreck you. Now there's a real shift, and there's no way we can avoid this here. It's still talking about worldliness, but then it goes from talking about about how we speak and communicate to each other. In the verses 13 through 17, he talks about the presumption of life. And then we pick up in verse 13, it says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows what is right, the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so we move from this situation where he talks about worldliness in this critical spirit to this worldliness that exists in, um, in the life of businessmen because that's really the scene. And you have this situation. He says, come. And look what it says. He draws our attention here. He says, come now, you who say this. It's this person who says, I'm going to go make a plan to make some cash, and I'm going to do that. Now, the Bible, there's some things, you know, sometimes you see some, some really troubling things that people kind of have misinterpreted. The, Bi- the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. You know that, right? The Bible says the money is the root of all sorts of evil. And there are these really snarky little comments and memes that float around that, says, said, that, that wrongly say of the Bible, the Bible says that the root of all evil is money, then why do all the churches ask for money? Oh, like, and, and I guess we're supposed to look at that and be like, oh, they, after thousands of years of Christianity, you and your snarky sarcasm have come up with a way to destroy this faith. Oh, my. You catch my sarcasm? What foolishness is that? The Bible does not talk about money as the root of all evil. It talks about the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It comes from the human heart. Money is just a thing. Sin comes from our heart. And greed is real and there. And we will find anything, our hearts, our idol factories, we'll find anything to love, anything to put up there, anything to be God in our life, anything to go after other than God. That's our default settings. But I want you to be clear. Bible is not against money. In fact, Jesus told us to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, or render to God's what is God's. Remember he talks about that? Jesus talks about money quite often. He talks about where your treasure is, that your heart will be. But money is not a bad thing. In fact, we have a situation where you think about how, the, how people with money help the apostles. Like Lydia, who was, if you go back and look in Acts chapter 16, who was, um, she made a lot of money from selling purple cloth, which was like a big deal, selling dyes and stuff like that in that time period. She made a lot of money, had a nice house. You know what she did with her nice house? She let the apostles stay there. And they were like, yes. I mean, that was like like going on a mission trip and not staying in a hut, but like staying in a mansion. You want to stay at my place? Yeah, I was going to stay in my tent, but you got a big, nice house. I'm going to go there. 
exactly what it was like. God uses people with money. There are believers in Jesus. You should not look at somebody because there's this, there are two strains of Christianity that are wrong. Okay, one of one of them is looks at this like, oh, look at that person. They got so much money. They must be blessed of God. No, <laughs> they may be ripping people off. Okay. All right, and usually people who say that you you sow a seed into my ministry, and that is usually almost no, I'll say 100% hogwash. Okay, usually you do this, you're going to get a bins. Okay, now you do that, that person's going to get a bins. You're going to get poorer. Okay, that's what it's going to come down to. That's one strand of Christianity. The other strand of Christianity sees somebody doing successful, being successful in whatever realm, and they're like, mm-hmm, that's sin, brother. You're just adapting to the world. Got so much stuff. How could you? Mm, that's the devils. Oh, that church is growing. Oh, my goodness. They must not be preaching the gospel. You ever seen that? That is the theological term horse manure, too. That is that is this... This, these wrong ideas that we accumulate for ourselves. And that is, so when he says here, when, this, when he's drawing the analogy about this man who says in verse 13, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. James is not calling out the make the profit point. What is he calling out? He is calling about this practical atheism which says, I will carry out my plans apart from acknowledging God. That is what he is getting at at its core. And so when he says that, because some of some could be like, yeah, that his problem is he's making a profit. No. Maybe God's going to use that guy to give to his church or to give to missions or to give to this, and God uses rich people all the time. Even sometimes without their knowledge, God uses rich people, okay? That is just, and it's not sinful to be rich. It is sinful to be greedy and love money above God and other people. That's sin. But that is not sin right here. The sin here is that they're making, that this person is making their plans without understanding their life and understanding God being in control. They're walking in practical atheism. So what do you have here? He says, there's a situation. Come now, come now, you who say this. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade to make a profit. This is obvious. In, in this situation, James is writing to people, and it's many of the Jewish, probably the Jewish Christians he was writing to, it would be just part of that, that culture there. That there, This was a time which people were making lots of money in trade. Roman Empire was in control. There was a relative peace in the area and a relatively, you know, relatively peaceful for the world. And trade and commerce were going on, and many Jews, especially Jewish Christians at that time, were making quite a bit of money. And so this would not be, this would be somebody going on a mission, on a, not a mission trip, on a, on a business trip to this town or that town and going there for a while, and they have a plan in which to go and to make a profit and to, to do this or that for a year. This would not be unusual. Just as it won't be unusual for many of us to take a business trip, like for Kevin to take many business trips, right, Kevin? I mean, that's, that's just like a, it's like a common thing. Get on, they wouldn't get on a plane. They'd get on a boat, go to this place, and make some money. Then in verse 14, it says this, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So the two presumptions are seen here. It's show worldliness. And it's the first one is this, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then it says, what is your life? 
for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. One of the aspects of worldliness is for you not to acknowledge the, the, the nature of our life. The nature of our life, the nature of life is finite, it's quick, it's here today, gone tomorrow. Secondly, not only that, but the nature of life is transitory. It's short. It's here, it's gone. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. I had plans this week. I had planned, my wife's birthday was this week. I was going to do this, that, the other thing. And then Tuesday I went to her school to bring her lunch, and I picked up a Mac Daddy parasite from the, the kiddos there, okay? And by Tuesday night, I was like full body shakes, okay? And like, and, and this fever and felt like manure. I did not plan that. I just was, I had a plan for this whole week and did not go how I expected it to go. That's just one of the many examples of the fact that we, that this person, the problem with this man's plan, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to go this and make this profit, is that he was trying to be the master of his own domain. And I want you to know something. You are not the master of your own domain. You can make your plans. They're not wrong. But he, this person here, and what James is criticizing is this worldliness that sees your life as ongoing forever. Your life is in your control. Your life is in, I know I'm going to do this and that and this. You're not contemplating the fact that my life might not go the way you think it's going to go. And secondly, you're not, you're not taking into consideration that your life is a mist and it could be over like that. It's a denial of life as it is presented in the Bible. And that is a definite sign of worldliness. You know why? We don't want to deal with mortality. We don't want to deal with change. We don't want to deal with those uncomfortable situations where plans fall apart. We don't like to think about that we're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. We don't like that. Well, maybe I'll change that. Maybe I say, I don't like that. Maybe you do, but I certainly don't. And that's the first thing he knows. He says, first off, you don't understand the nature of your life. That's the problem he has with that statement. The next thing he says in verse 15 says this. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. He's saying, first off, you didn't recognize life. Second thing is you're arrogant because we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. This is not necessarily a call for us to say, with every plan that we make, to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. Now, you can do that, and, and it's totally a fine thing to do. And if you need that little reminder that says, oh, I need to ask, I need to see about if this is God's will, or to say, I'm going to make this plan according to God's will. That is totally a fine thing for you to do. But this is not, just because you say that phrase does not mean you're actually thinking about the Lord's will in all of your life. You know that, right? Because it's become, especially in the South, which has been so very rooted in the Bible Belt for so long, many of many people who aren't even believers or nominally believers, okay, which that's an oxymoron, but you know what I mean? Like people who would say that they were Christian or attend church, what would they say? Lord will, and I'm going to do this. They would even say that. You're totally welcome to say that. I say that quite a, quite a lot. When Clint and I make plans to get together to talk about worship, at the end of every one of his messages, it says, all right, we'll see you there. And he puts a big LW. I know what he means. Lord willing, okay? Or maybe he says, like, loser something. I don't know. But he said, no, he's saying Lord willing, okay? And that's what he says. And what is that coming from? It's the, 
first, the first part that James finds wrong with this man's, I'm going to go here, there, and make this profit, is that he's not acknowledging that life can change in a moment, not acknowledging the nature of life, the transitory nature of life. Secondly, they're not acknowledging God as sovereign. We do not, it is a, against the mind, the human mind, the mind, the carnal mind, the mind set apart from Christ to acknowledge the sovereignty of God in our lives. It is something, I want to make this plan, I want to make this, I want to do that. I was in a real difficult season in my life, and I was trying to get out of this difficult season as quickly as I could. And so I was scheming and planning and looking and trying to find new employment, trying to find different things like that, trying to find, you know, I want to get to this town, this city. And don't hear audible voices from God, but I will tell you when his word speaks, sometimes it's almost as if he's like, dude, <laughs> right here. And this verse kind of was, was swimming around there. The Lord wills, and I realized something. I had not asked the Lord what he wanted my, the next five, six, seven years of my life to look, look, at, look like. And that's what I said. I, you can't, I can't move, Lord, until I ask your permission to move. Not your permission, but your guidance and your will. So many of us practice a kind of functional atheism in which we make our plans, we set our goals, we get our five-year plan, we get our 10-year plan, we get our, this is what I want my life to look like, and we believe that we're walking on that because, you know, we go to church on Sundays. Obviously, God would tell me if I was wrong here or, or whatever. We get to that place, and, and we're saying, that's my life. And this is a stark reminder that you can make your plans, but to do so without a knowledge and a thought and, a, and the ever presence of God being sovereign and in control and being at a willing, at a, just a moment to be able to change your plans is practical atheism. Now, none of you would say you don't believe God, that you don't believe he's there. Most of you would say, I believe you believe in his son, and you want to follow him. And we've been doing the follow me study. You say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to take up my cross and follow him. But the sad facts remain that sometimes we live our life like we don't believe that at all. Because we don't ever acknowledge the presence of Christ or his will in our lives. And so if you need to start saying, Lord willing, just to say, just to avoid that worldliness of making our plans without a thought of thinking about who, where God is and who God is and what he wants. Do you know something? I, I truly strongly believe this. If we became a church that before we moved, and I hope that's where we are, but before we move anywhere as, you know, in, whether you move in a job or whether we move, you know, what, what, however we move, we, we, we take on this ministry endeavor or that ministry endeavor. If we became this church that we always ask, your will be done. And if we became, if, you know, if my family was like one of those, like, all right, we're going to do this. But, Lord, is it your will? Lord, show us if it is your will. We think it is. We're following, you know, we're going to make this plan. But it's always, we're always subject to you coming in and just interrupting our schedule and interrupting our lives and interrupting where we are. We want to follow your will. That is the nature where you take all of life and you look, like, look at it like it's being lived before the presence of God. Because it is. There is a Latin phrase, and we're going to drop some Latin on folks in Hartsville today, okay? And I hope you get to do that today. It's Coram Dio. And I'm probably saying that wrong because I always say 
Greek words and Latin words wrong, but corum dio. You know what that means? It means before the face of God. And Luther, the reformer, he was the one who really, in essence, helped develop the understanding of how we live all of life before the presence of God, and even our vocations, no matter what we do, whether we're barbers or or tending cattle or building things or pastors or whatever, that all of our lives as believers are sacred because we are living them for the glory and in the presence of God. And so we can take that which seems mundane and now we can know it to be holy as we walk with the knowledge that our Lord is present through the Spirit in our lives and He is guiding there's providence in all things. And that in our very work, in our very lives as at home, and in, as a life in the church, that we are living in His presence to give Him glory and honor and love. Boy, that changes Monday a little bit. That changes life. And that is what James is getting at. We can't walk with this presumption that we'll do this or that. Remember, your life is short and finite, and it is supposed to be lived underneath the supreme knowledge that everything that happens is according to His will, and we need to walk in accordance with His will. And we, we de- as believers, we need to seek not our own will, but His will in all things. And live in this quorum Dio state where we're living in the presence of God at all times. And this will freak people out. It really will. It will show ourselves to be freakish in a culture. And I'm meaning this in a good way, because as Christians, we are no longer residents of this planet in the sense that that's not our, that's not our final destination. Our final destination is a heavenly home. Our final destination is a new heavens and new earth renewed. Our new home, we are now citizens of the kingdom of God living in occupied territory at the moment. And so, can you imagine that conversation? So, what do you do? Well, do you tell them? What's your, you know, how you go? Well, what, what's your plans? You know, what's your plans for your family? Well, we got this plan, but I'll tell you, we know that all of our plans can fall apart in a moment. And I just want to follow God and ask him at every point of my life what his will is. And I believe his will will be revealed to me, and I'll walk in that. Can you imagine how weird people will look at you? Like, that's just weird. But that is the beautiful, otherworldly strangeness of Christianity. And it's, a, it's, a, it's the part of the narrow road life and not the life that leads to destruction. And then finally, James here in verse 17 wants us to move. I mean, not, not talking about move, residency. He wants us to make a move. When we hear God's word, we make a move. And I want to be really clear to you guys, like, when you hear God's Word taught and you read God's Word and it's very clear and definitive what it is saying, you don't have the option, and I don't have the option, just to go, oh, that's nice, and move on. The Bible demands that we obey immediately. Like, it's not like a, you should do this. It's like, no, do this now. And it is to our detriment when we do not obey. 
well, I'm just going to hang in this situation, in this life situation for a while until, you know, I, you know, I don't know. No, if you know it's sin, get out of it. It's not for your good. And if you know what you should do and don't do it, that's also sin. And that is what we see in verse 17. He says to make a move. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, we've talked about these before. There's a sin of commission in which you do something that the Bible says you should not do. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and you commit adultery. That is a sin of commission, okay, or commission. However, on the other end of the spectrum are the sins of omission, which means this, that if you know what's right and you still don't do it, that is sin. To know the truth and to not do it, that is sin. And I'm telling you this as not somebody who's wanting to judge you, okay? Because I don't want you to go down to the pit. I don't want you to have difficult times. I don't want you to, I don't want to elevate myself to a place by putting you down. That's not the judgment which I am trying to bring to you. I just want you to know something. The Bible tells me, I, I, the Bible tells me I need to preach the word in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and correct with the word of God. And I want you to know this. To stay in your sin and to know that it is wrong, to know what to do and not to do it, that is sin. And you must move now. Don't stay where you are and think your situation is going to get better. You might, start feel, you might start feeling less and less guilty about it, but that's not, a sign, that's not a good thing. The Lord uses guilt and conviction in our life to lead us back to Him. So don't for a moment think you can stay and like just nod your head and like, yeah, I don't need to show partiality. But you do. You prefer this person over the other person. You treat this person better than this person in the church. You can't do that. You can't say, oh, well, I know, yeah, that's good. I know that I need to tame my tongue, but that's just me. I'm just, well, I just say what I think. No, that is sin. Stop. Like, you know, I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll be overnight, but it has to come a point where you're like, I'm going to stop this. And so many of you, I know some of you have, have smoked previously in your life. And now you don't smoke anymore because you met at one point, you said, I'm not going to smoke anymore. Now, you probably had some relapses. And me bringing that up, May, you might have the taste for that. And thinking about it right now, that would be kind of nice. But at the same time, you, there was a decision point in which you said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then what do you do? You keep going after that. That is what is happening here James is getting to the point, he talks about this, and you go up in further, further verses of James 8 and 9, it says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to, near to you. Weep, mourn, wail. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What does he want? When sin, and the Bible shows you what sin is, you must move quickly to get out of it. Don't stay in it any longer. Every time you do, your heart gets just a little bit harder. Every time you know what you should do and don't do it, you continue in sin. That is not what the Bible calls The Bible calls us to immediately, not to get better and be 100% about it, but to immediately make that change and say, God, I repent. I'm coming. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to come to you. I want to follow you. I don't want to stay here anymore. I want to go after you. That is this warning. It's this, it's this move. 
These are not things to file away and say, hey, when I get older, when I get better, when I get more mature, I'll follow the Word of God. No, it's now. I don't know if I can do it, but I will say, God, I want to, and I'm going to turn from this, and let's go. That's why I fear sometimes we file things away. We file sermons away like, that was good. I felt convicted there. I'll put that one in, put that in this file cabinet. I can go back to that sometimes. Okay, and I, I, you know, then when people start talking, you know, you start thinking about, you know, your life, and you go, well, I felt convicted once, and you go back and pull that Rolodex out, and you hold it, and you like, feel better. Oh, I feel better. I felt convicted once. That's, that's, that's insane. That, we can't do that. We cannot live that way. The grace of God is too present. The glory of God is too astounding and loving and, and amazing for us to stay that way. The depths and nastiness of sin is too great for us to wallow in it any longer. We must move. So what does that look like? For us today, it's going to look like this. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Just a moment. But before we do that, and Kevin's going to come up here and lead us in that. Before we do that, we're going to have a time of just prayer and reflection. And we're going to ask, if God's convicted your heart, maybe you got something, maybe you've been judgmental, and you've been judgmental to a person in here, maybe you need to go and make that right before you take the Lord's Supper. It's like maybe that person that you've been like that to is not here today. You just need to refrain from the supper until you go and make that right with your brother, sister, friend, whoever. That may be where you need. You've been judgmental. Some of us may have been presumptuous. We've been not thinking about God in our life, not thinking about God in our plans. And so what we need to do now is just repent and say, God, I, I, today, I'm gonna, I, that's what I, I'm turning from my self-centered life, my life that says I will make my plans and I'm coming back to you and saying your will be done in my life. Thirdly, some of you may be here and neither of those things resonate with you, but the last thing I said, it just really stuck, stuck in your heart through the Spirit of God. And, and you were like, I must move. I know I've had this sin in my life for a long time, and I keep filing away little tidbits of truth in there, but now i got to deal with it. And what the Lord's Supper represents is the body and blood of Jesus broken for us that we might know forgiveness and restore relationship and justification with God. The Bible tells us to be careful how we take it because it's a symbol of, of what Christ has done. It invites believers to take it. Well, we need to spend some time preparing our heart for that and then taking it together as a symbol of us coming back to him and saying, we will follow you, Jesus. So if you would, just bow your head, close your eyes in an attitude of prayer. I ask our, our team to come forward, and they're going to be um, passing out the elements. And then in a moment, we'll take them together. Let me pray for us. Father, move in our lives, change us, make us quick to hear, slow to speak, and ready to obey. God, we pray that you would continue to work through your word and our time of worship, point out our sins, and call us to repentance so that we don't have to remain there any longer. In Jesus' name, amen.